All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talking and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello everyone, I'm Sasha Wolf, recording as usual from the Center for Photography in Woodstock, which is actually in Kingston. I should explain that to people. Anyway, joined as usual by the man of the hour, of every hour, no matter what hour it is, of any... <laughs> time or any day of the week, it's always this guy, my guy, Mr. Michael Chovendalton. Hello, Michael. Hi there. So you're in Kingston at CPW. You live uh, also in Woodstock. Yeah. Yeah. It's a I'm, little I'm down near Trenton. Okay. <laughs> the Center for Something in Trenton. So, um, yeah. So the Center of Photography in Woodstock was in Woodstock for many decades. And then they moved um, a couple of years ago to neighboring town, a little city called Kingston, New York, first capital of New York State. <laughs> and they're, they've been expanding. Uh, their space in Woodstock was, was quite small, wonderful at the time, but CPW is, is growing by the day, really. And so they've been operating out of this space in, on Broadway in, in Kingston, and they last year bought a 40,000 square foot old factory building that they're beginning to move into and do renovations to. And that's where my recording studio is in this wonderful factory building. Eventually, I think, personally, just speaking for myself, that <laughs> Center for Photography in Kingston will become like the Dia Beacon of yeah. photography in, in this area. Eventually, I think they'll have incredible programming, incredible exhibitions, a cafe, a bookshop, all sorts of exciting things, but they're, they're building up to that. And meanwhile, you should go online and check out what they do have because they do have wonderful programming. And the PhotoWork Foundation, um, we're working hard on some collaborations with them, which is exciting. Um, but mm -hmm. anyway, that's the that's the story behind the strange Center for Photography in Woodstock that's not actually in Woodstock anymore, but <laughs> in the neighboring town of Kingston. I think, uh, I think we'll be just saying CPW from now on. Yeah, CPW. <laughs> yep. No, it, that is a, an amazing space uh, and so much potential for, yep. uh, for renovation and what they're doing up there. And they're, you know, I'll just say I had a meeting this morning with one of the key people here, Sarah Danziger, who I love, and we're hatching some plans. So stay, mm. tuned, stay tuned for that. The PhotoWork Foundation and CPW are working on some really exciting offerings in the future. You know, along the lines of uh, great events and great partners, of course, uh, we are sponsored by Picture House and the Small Dark Room. Yes, uh, we are. And and they still have more events coming up. Uh, the February 6th Clint Woodside event with uh, Maud Arsenault uh, did pass, but on Saturday, February 17th. I was 17th, there. Sorry. Oh, you were. I'm blowing oh, yeah. your promo, but yeah, I was there um, with Taylor. I was unable to make it. You yeah, were unable yeah. oh, yeah. to make it. Um, Taylor's up from Mexico. 
Yep. Yep. Taylor came up from Mexico, not just for that, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we went over there and that was a lot of fun. It was a packed house over, over there. So um, that was wonderful to see. I'm sorry I stepped all over your promo. No, Can no. It's, continue I mean, on. Yeah. So more great, hopefully packed events uh, this Saturday. Well, as of uh, the release date of this show, uh, this Saturday, February 17th, uh, they'll be joined by Brooklyn-based photographer Sharon Mukherjee. And then on March 5th, Jay Carrier will be discussing his forthcoming book, Mirage, published by TIS. And then Ian Lewandowski will be giving a talk on April 9th in conjunction with his solo show at Clamp Gallery. And then finally, Tim Carpenter will be in the studio on April 24th to discuss his new book, Little, published by Ice Plant. Uh, so February 17th is the next event, Cheryl Mukherjee, and then March 5th, Jay Carrier. Lots of great stuff that I may yeah. show up to some of that. Um, I will definitely try. Um, <laughs> I have to yeah. really do it. Some friends of ours. <laughs> and yeah, that's that, that's all great. And, and once again, just continued thanks and much gratitude to uh, Picture House for, for supporting the podcast, our main yep. sponsor, who does a lot for us. Um, and we, we love Love those guys. And if you have trouble following that verbally, check out phtsdr.com. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. So we had an event, actually, Mm -hmm. which is why I was in the city and why Taylor came up from Mexico. We had a Photo Work Foundation party um, last week to thank all of the folks who have been instrumental in our success, getting us going, and it was lovely to see everyone. It was really a lot of fun. And you were there and I, your wife yeah. was there, which was wonderful. And yeah, it was really a oh, lovely Oh, by the way, my, my wife, Cynthia, who is a, uh, a development uh, director, has been for many years, said we hit it. You hit it out of the park. Oh, <laughs> she said it was well, a fantastic event. Oh, yeah, God, perfect. that's so nice. Oh, it was. she said it was perfect in everything, size and time and the ability for everyone to talk to each other and everything and it was a beautiful place yeah yeah, it was a beautiful space oh that's so nice to hear uh taylor Mm -hmm. and i agonized over picking the right (laughs) spot (laughs) you know it's funny you don't want too big a room and you don't want too small a room (laughs) (laughs) no yeah, Um, yeah she loved it and so did i yeah yeah well, that's wonderful. I had a wonderful time as well, even though I had to make a speech that, of course, I, you know, basically blacked <laughs> out during. But um, <laughs> Well, nobody could tell. <laughs> yeah, it's always funny when people come up to you afterwards and say nice things, like really nice speech, whatever. And I'm just thinking, what did I say? But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, <laughs> Did anyone record that? <laughs> what happened? It was a fugue state. Um, anyway, well... We have a wonderful show today. This is really mm-hmm. exciting. Um, you want to tell folks about it? Yeah. So our guest today is Baldwin Lee. Yep. And this is one of the most I- interesting episodes, yes. I think, we've yep. had. Uh, of course, Baldwin Lee is, is an amazing person and an amazing photographer, but has taken a very different sort of path to being an artist. In fact, uh, quitting, uh, you yep. know, as a, as an artist, but now being recognized for the great work that uh, he did, and and first of all, he has a really interesting background uh, as a Chinese American and and growing up in Chinatown, and you talk about that, and mm-hmm. he talks a bit about his father. He studied with you know some of the most amazing people in the history of photography. Mm-hmm. 
And then he, you know, he did this work, which is now published as a collection uh, under his name. And and then you talk about, you know, the way he thinks about what the responsibility of artists in a way I don't think I've heard before. Uh, no. So it's just incredible. Yeah. No, there's no question that there's a lot that comes up in this episode that no one's ever talked about before. There's mm-hmm. a real um, uniqueness to this conversation. I think all of our conversations are unique, but there's certainly a lot of overlap, not with this one. (laughs) Right. That's right. That's right. Baldwin is occupying a space all his own. um, An original. Yes. An original. (laughs) One thing that was really interesting to me is that one of our guests from our last episode, Carla Williams, shares with Baldwin this sort of interesting phenomenon of having made incredible work decades ago that mm-hmm. was not brought forth until very recently. And so they've both had this really delayed That's right. recognition of their work, and yet they have diametrically opposed, I think, attitudes toward being artists, photographing, and in Baldwin's case, you actually said earlier that Baldwin Lee is, you know, something like a, whatever you said, an amazing artist, amazing photographer, wonderful photographer, but that's the present tense. And yes, you know, he's not, he was. That's right. And it's, it's just fascinating. It may sound to our listeners rather cryptic what we're talking about, (laughs) but listen to the episode and it it will all make sense. It's just really fascinating for me personally, because I actually interviewed Carla Williams and Baldwin Lee within a few days of each other. Mm-hmm. I talked to them within a few days of each other, even though we released the podcast two weeks apart. But for me to go from talking to Carla and her sort of exuberance around photography to Baldwin was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And another example of just how friggin' lucky I am to get to do what I do. <laughs> That's yeah, for sure. absolutely. Yep. Well, and the book is called Baldwin Lee, and it is it is published by Hunter's Point Press. Yep, it was published by Barney Kulak. Yep. And big thanks to Barney for <laughs> a collective thanks to Barney for <laughs> doing such incredible work and in editing and getting this book out to the world. Barney Kulak is a wonderful person who I've absolutely. known for yeah. a long time, incredibly sensitive and lovely talented human being and um yeah much gratitude to him for bringing baldwin lee to us um in this Mm -hmm. beautiful book form and if you don't have baldwin's book it's going to be a collector's item i think um oh yes yes it is yeah along with carla's as well which is Mm -hmm. spectacular and anyway okay we're now going on and on um (laughs) let's get to it michael if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Baldwin Lee. Baldwin Lee, welcome to PhotoWork Podcast. It's so wonderful to get a chance to, to talk with you. So thank you so much for finding time to do this with me today. It's uh, my pleasure. So Baldwin, as you know, we start every podcast with the artist talking about their own biography and how they 
became a photographer and, and where they are in life, what their journey was. So if you could tell us about yourself rather than me reading off a website, that would be, yeah, wonderful. So please go ahead. I'm um, very much the, the product of my upbringing and in particular, my father. He was very much of the school of the, the tiger parent and uh, he he came to the U.S. as an immigrant from China, and he had very clear ideas about how my life would unfold. And as his son, I was very dutiful and pretty much fulfilled all of his wishes. He, he came to this country originally uh, to study architecture in uh, New York at Pratt, uh, but he enlisted in the, the U.S. Army even though he was a Chinese national. And uh, as his reward for enlisting, he was uh, a participant in D-Day. But that allowed him wow. to, as a, a GI, to bring my mother from China uh, to New York, where they started to have a family. And so I am the second oldest of five children. And my father's game plan for me was, uh, was very straightforward. He told me at a very early age, I think I was maybe five years old, that I would go to MIT. And I did. And he was uh, very pleased. He was very proud up until I had uh, been graduated. And so we were living in New York and my father had come up to uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts to bring me and my stuff from college back home. And we had never had a, a warm or very open relationship. But in the car ride home, he asked me, uh, now that I had finished college, what I wanted to do. And I told him that I wanted to be a photographer. And he didn't respond. And so I looked back up at him and I saw there was a tear running down his face. And so that's how I, I began uh, photography with complex and mixed feelings about how to proceed. And one of my big regrets is that my father was unable to see what I would eventually do with photography. I think he might have changed his mind and might have been proud uh, as well. well. I want to get to who you studied with at MIT, and then you went on to, to Yale for your MFA. And you had two very illustrious <laughs> um, professors. But before we get there, I just want to ask you about growing up. You grew up in Chinatown, is that yes. correct? In yes, that's right. Lower Manhattan. Yeah. What was that like? Because I'm a native New York City or third generation New York City person. And, you know, going to Chinatown when I was a kid was always you know, extremely exciting. My dad would take us to, you know, the, the banquet halls for dim sum. And it was really an exotic place, even for me, who grew up there and had friends at school of all different backgrounds and whatnot. But Chinatown was, was it's a little less so now, but for many, many decades, it was a very insular and very specific community. What was it like? I'm just curious for you growing, growing up there. Uh, for me, uh, growing up in Chinatown was um, a, a really different experience from what people typically think about growing up in New York. You know, although uh, New York had 
the greatest diversity of of cultural, culinary, uh, I mean, all sorts of experiences. Uh, mm-hmm. Chinatown was its own small community. Everybody yeah. I knew was Chinese. All my friends and classmates were Chinese. We all grew up uh, speaking Chinese, and we only learned English as a result of going to school. Uh, my elementary school, public school, had uh, all Chinese in it except for two. And people talk about fearing for their safety in New York. But when I was growing up, I would ride the subways at at age 10. I never encountered any kind of, of crime or any situation which was unpleasant. And so I, I thought my world was a, a very complete and safe one. What was the role or non-role of art? And I don't mean whether or not you went to MoMA or the other museums, but you know, also just, you know, the kind of art that may have been more integrated into the household or the community. Was there any awareness on your part of, because obviously Chinatown is a really beautiful and amazing place. It's very decorative in many ways. And I wonder if you were at all aware of the aesthetics that sort of existed in that community. Well, in growing up in my household, um, among the things which were on the walls uh, were watercolors that my father had made uh, when he was serving in Europe. When mm. you know, after D-Day, uh, he was stationed in, in France, and during his off-duty times, he would paint. And he learned how to paint uh, when he was in architecture school, and he was really uh, rather good at it. And so we had a, a fairly uh, large number of his paintings, and and I really admired his, his skill. So it's interesting, although your father wanted you to sort of achieve maybe at a very conventionally high level, going to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology um, in Boston, one of the great schools, one of the most competitive schools to get into, probably wanted you to be an engineer or something like that. But maybe if he could hear us having this conversation, he'd, he'd think, oh boy, but maybe he had a real influence on you as an artist in a way. Uh, y- yes, he did, both positive and, and negative. Uh, my father uh, never practiced a day as an architect. He had to take over the family business in New York because of, of his uncle's failing health. And the business was a company that manufactured uh, Chinese noodles. And I'm certain that you've, you've had them. The company was called yep. Yakao Min, and uh, he supplied all the restaurants in New York and up and down the East Coast. And he uh, worked diligently at that job until his death, but he hated it. He mm-hmm. resented having to accede to familial responsibilities rather than having the chance to fulfill what he wanted to to do to practice architecture. And so the irony of the situation is that he, in spite of his own personal life experiences, he wanted me to follow in his footsteps. He wanted me to become something in engineering or science even though he knew that that wasn't what I wanted. 
it was a very sad realization. Maybe he was conflicted about it. Who knows? Well, so you wound up studying photography with Minor White at MIT, and and then you had a relationship with Walker Evans when you were at Yale. I, I know you printed for Walker. And could you talk a little bit, and I'm sorry to even ask you this, because I know you've been asked this a million times, and you don't have to get too far down this path, but just tell us a little bit about the role of of Minor and Walker in your your life, and your life as a developing artist, and and what influence they may or may not have uh, had on you. Well, Minor White uh, was was the one person who really cemented my belief that I should uh, continue in photography. He was the the first artist that I had ever met, and he was uh, quite influential. As a man, I think the word charismatic is appropriate. He was the sort of person who, upon entering a room, would immediately cause conversation to, to cease, and all eyes would turn toward him. This was in the late 1960s, when the counterculture, the anti-Vietnam War movement, uh, uh, drugs and everything was going on. And uh, he was very much a man of his time. He surprisingly talked very little about photography. He instead would keep us abreast of what he was doing as the um, original founder and an editor of Aperture Magazine. Mm-hmm. We learned about photography by by looking at and talking about the artists that he would show. And then when I, after completing my degree at MIT, I took a year off where I, interestingly enough, worked for an architect in New York. And I decided that I, I wanted to go back to school and I applied to Yale and I found Walker Evans. And um, as I said, I didn't learn that much about photography from Minor White. I learned even less about photography from Walker Evans. At this point, <laughs> he was in, in the last couple of years of his life and wasn't really very interested in teaching. Uh, mm-hmm. Classes were uh, amusing. Uh, we would meet with him once a week, and it would consist of our handing him a stack of photographs that he would uh, perfunctorily uh, flip through, and he would hand them back, say, nice work, nice work, do some more. And and that was about it. And if it had not been for my opportunity to do printing for him, I would have probably not really been influenced at all by going to Yale. Right. But being his printer was an amazing experience because I did this in his house, in his dark room. So I got to really see how he lived, what he thought about, the state of his mind, and a thousand details about a life in photography. So I I consider my education just a remarkable one in that I had a chance to study with uh, two figures who really shaped uh, the course of photography. When I was at Yale, I would every month or so drive up to Cambridge to talk to Minor White to compare notes. He would ask me mm-hmm. <laughs> what Walker Evans was like, and Evans would, would do the same. And I was very frank. I tried to be provocative to get them to open up. And so uh, Minor White thought that Evans was not much more than a documentarian, whereas mm-hmm. Evans thought that uh, Minor White was full of hot air and uh, 
and he was just only interested in promoting himself as a guru. So it was a it was a good time, and, and uh, <laughs> you know the, each was was able to to speak it about the other in a way that they would never have done so if they were in the same room. It's sort of funny because it's, it's I'm just thinking that some of the qualities that you possessed as a young man that allowed you to cultivate relationships with your photographic subjects, a certain, from what I understand, shyness and obviously lovely and empathetic demeanor. Sounds like it also served you with these two guys who felt comfortable <laughs> talking trash to a certain extent. About yes, it was. Other it was trash talking, <laughs> certainly. <laughs> I'm just going to fast forward a bit to when you start making the body of work that we're going to talk about today. Uh, I just want to read just a little excerpt on the book page for your monograph, which is uh, just called Baldwin Lee. In 1983, Baldwin Lee left his home in Knoxville, Tennessee with his 4x5U camera and set out on the first of a series of road trips to photograph the American South. The subject of his pictures were black Americans, at home, at work, and at play, in the street, and among nature. This project would consume Lee, a first-generation Chinese-American, for the remainder of that decade, and it would forever transform his perception of his country, its people, and himself. The resulting archive from the seven-year period contains nearly 10,000 black and white negatives, which is amazing, given that it's a four-by-five. This monograph, Baldwin Lee, presents a selection of 88 images edited by the photographer Barney Kulak, who is also, I think, Barney published. Is that correct? Barney's the publisher as well? Yeah. Um, Well, just uh, big congratulations to Barney, who I've known for a long time and is a lovely person and extremely talented and has, with you, created this really extraordinary monograph. I also want to say for people listening, just to give a sense of the impact that this book had when it came out in 2022, it was shortlisted at Aural, it was shortlisted for the Aperture Perry Photo Photo Book of the Year Award, Best Photo Books, Time Magazine, PhotoEye, uh, Vince Oletti, ICP, etc., etc., some quotes Vince, going back to Vince Letty, who I love, Vince said, the warmth and, and soulfulness of his work is not the result of intellectual effort. It's grounded in understanding, a combination of intensity and restraint, and surely a shared sense of otherness. Margaret Renkel in the New York Times, the best street photography focuses our attention on what we have trained ourselves to ignore. Even decades after he took them, the stunning photos of Baldwin Lee have the power to open our eyes, to teach us to see. Sean O'Hagan and The Guardian, a revelatory record of a time and place and a people. Kenneth Dickerman in The Washington Post. The photos in Baldwin Lee's namesake book, recently published by Hunter's Point Press, are sumptuously lyrical explorations of America's Deep South. I'll just read two more. I could read many more. Uh, Mark Steinmetz in Time Magazine. I suspect that few are aware of the accomplishments of Baldwin Lee, who photographing in the South 30 years ago, produced a body of work that is among the most remarkable in American photography of the past half century. And I'll just end with the great Judith Joy Ross, who said, 
Baldwin's work is amongst the most moving work of its time. I'm sorry to have been so ignorant to have not known of it. Blessed to know it now. There are many other quotes by wonderful people in the community who I have great respect for talking about your work. So let's let's get into it. From 1982 to 1989, you, you photographed black Americans in, in the American South, and that's what this book is that has taken the photo world by storm. So let's, let's just talk a bit about what that experience was like for you using a four by five camera. I just want to talk a little bit about the process of being there. How did you begin? I'm sure you don't remember your taking your first photograph, but maybe you remember the beginning days of being in these other communities and trying to find your way. If you could just talk about that, I'd, I'd be really interested. I actually do have uh, very clear and specific memories of uh, the first pictures I took. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of background. When I, I came to, to Knoxville in 1982, I was uh, very, very well prepared to do the work that would ensue. I had uh, been a teacher at the Massachusetts College of Art in Boston, where I taught alongside mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nicholas Nixon. And in, in my time in Boston, I made some, some very important and conscious decisions about the direction of my photography. I had originally, with the 4x5 camera, photographed uh, the architecture in New York. And after a while, when the pictures became pretty good and I knew that I could just go out any day and make more of the same, I decided I needed to do something different. And I gave myself a challenge. I, I wanted to, to photograph people. And this was a, not only a photographic challenge, but a personal one, because I was a very, very shy. I, I would, in public speaking situations, stutter and stammer, and it, it was very, very uncomfortable. One of the hardest things I had to do prior to this was uh, I had to deliver the valedictory speech at one of New York's specialized high schools, Brooklyn Tech. So I, I forced myself to photograph people by going to places where people engaged in some kind of recreational activity. And I forced myself to approach people, to introduce myself, to ask for permission. And I did this countless times until I transform myself into, and I've described this before in other situations, before I became a monster. I could go anywhere, walk up to anybody, and in any situation, ask for permission and secure permission to make photographs. Mm -hmm. And so upon the start of my trips through the South, I had no doubt uh, that I could do this work. And so the first pictures I took were in Nashville, which is about two hours west of of Knoxville. And it was at the Centennial Park, which had this amazing structure. The Parthenon was recreated for an exposition. And I made pictures of the building, and I made pictures of people around the building, and I was able to experience one of the 
the miracles of photography. And, you know, and photography is based upon uh, circumstance, serendipity, and irrational forces. So I, I started in the late afternoon and made a bunch of pictures uh, that I knew were no good. And I had learned that making bad pictures is just part of the process. It's, it's nothing to be discouraged about. And then something wonderful happened. As the sun fell below the horizon, these sodium vapor lamps at the base of the Parthenon began to glow. And you know they're like the, the kind of lights that are along highways. And they start glowing a kind of an orange color before they get bright. And so here it was, the Parthenon was, was glowing against a deep blue sky. And I was just thrilled. And upon resetting up my camera, a family came by with uh, four children. And I, I reached out to the family and said, may I, may I take a picture of your children in front of the Parthenon? And they said, yes. And so that was the very first good picture I took. And so you begin this uh, seven-year, I don't know if it's an exploration, I don't know, you know what you're thinking you're doing, but, well, maybe you could tell us what you think you're doing. In your head, what are you doing? What are you making? Who, who's it for? You know, what's the motivation? Uh, it, it was an obsession. Prior to, to coming to the South, I was um, a rather apolitical person. Even though I was familiar with the way that minorities would be treated in this country, I really didn't feel anything personal about that. But as I began to, to meet and photograph Black Americans in the South, I became really emotional. I was really moved by what I saw, what I heard, what I learned, and I felt compelled to do this work. I knew enough about the history of um, art made for social or political reasons. I, I know that uh, Picasso's Guernica didn't stop bombs from, from being dropped on people, and you know Goya's paintings didn't prevent people from, from dying. So I, I was not some idealist thinking that I could change the world, but I, I thought it was my duty. It was a responsibility to, to photograph people. And so relieved from having to fulfill the responsibility of making my work be about a cause, I was free to then uh, focus on the people individually. I was really, really interested in the individuals who were standing in front of my camera. And that became really what I did for this period of time. After you, I'm going to jump around a bit. After you finish the series, and we'll talk about that in a second, the decision to stop. How do you think about this archive you now have? Where does it go? Where do you want it to go? Where do you imagine it going? What, what were your ambitions for, for this, this archive of, of images? When I was working uh, actively as a photographer, I was uh, absolutely unambitious professionally. I didn't uh, care about uh, getting exhibitions. I didn't care about being published. I didn't care about being known. I did it uh, purely for my interest in the medium of photography and for my own personal reasons. And so it 
has been very surprising, the amount of interest that has been shown, and how I suddenly was transformed from being a nobody to this kind of celebrity. And I'm not really sure I'm comfortable with it, but it is kind of uh, amazing to think about. How did the work come out into the world a couple of years ago? What was what happened? I was represented in, in a group show in uh, the Ogden Museum in New Orleans. And this was the start of um, a series of fortuitous instances. Uh, Barney Kulak was in New Orleans, and he went and saw my pictures, and he contacted me. And I talked with him, and we arranged to meet in New York, and I was immediately impressed. And he offered uh, to explore publication opportunities. And I said, yes, I knew he was legit. Upon entering his, his loft space in Long Island City, I knew he knew what he was talking about. Uh, from his yeah, collection of photographs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he had uh, August Sanders. Uh, he had uh, Stieglitz's Steerage. I looked at his library. Uh, uh, so I, I I thought, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. Uh, this is mm -hmm. going to be legitimate. And I had learned about uh, some of the other publications he had done. I, I learned about his educational background and because I had no particular ambitions, I just turned everything over to him. And so every consequential point in my career since then ha has Barney's fingerprints all over it. So we talked about a book, and I said that he could see my pictures on my website. I had maybe 100 pictures there. And he said he wanted to see more. And I go, yeah, I, I can do that. He goes, well, how many do you have? And I, I go, I don't know. And he goes, can you estimate? And I said, you know, let me get back to you. So what I did was I gathered up all my negatives and I took a stack of the four by five negatives, maybe four or five inches uh, thick. And I put them on a scale and I weighed them. And I then extrapolated that I had, you know, more than 10,000. And I go, well, how many of them do you want to see? And he said, all of them. And so I proceeded then to digitize all my negatives. And, wow, that's amazing. And Barney knows more about my work than I do. Mm -hmm. he, he created this Instagram page for me. And every week or so, he posts another picture. And I look at it and I go, gosh, I don't even remember that one. <laughs> Where did that come from? Right. Yeah, that's, but, that's but incredible. But he uh, yeah. is my men mentor, my publicist. Um, every Everything that has happened that has been good is exactly due to Barney's devotion, his passion, and his hard work. Well, that's that's wonderful. And as I said, I know Barney, and he's a very decent person, in addition to being extremely smart. So it's a, a good uh, combination. You're in good hands. So I can read something that you wrote in Art Forum that it's not that long, that just explains why you stopped photographing, or you could tell us, it's, it's up to you. But th then I want to get into that a bit. Sure. So what would you prefer? I, I can just tell you about it. When I, I finished uh, this body of work in 1989, I was still employed as a professor of photography at the University of Tennessee. And so I, I became, you know, in 89, 
I became really exhausted. I, I was really, I was really spent. I was emotionally drained. I was psychologically really taxed. And I was physically beat up. I, I just couldn't do any more work. And so as things go in the university system, you always have to be doing something and you're, you're measured by it for promotions and raises and stuff like that. So I began to do a bunch of other projects. I started to do uh, things with a digital camera. I started to do landscapes, um, you know, th things like that, which were okay. I mean, they were mildly interesting, but I, I didn't have my heart in any of the other things that I did since my Southern Pictures. And so I, I decided that it was pretty pointless to continue, so I quit. I knew that I had done my best work. I knew that I could not repeat it. It seemed very clear that there was no reason to take pictures anymore. So I just stopped cold turkey. And this has caused an infinite amount of consternation. I mean, everybody says, well, why don't you just keep taking more pictures? And, and I, I, I have uh, some very strong opinions about this. And, and I think that I had a moral responsibility to stop and to do any more would be fraudulent. And so I, I think that artists need to ask themselves this question. To what extent are they doing anything to further their medium, or are they just doing this because they've become part of the machine of the art world? Whenever I go to New York, I go to the galleries and I look at the work, and I, I can't help but feel as if I'm participating in uh, this capitalist uh, venture of marketing. And the people who are the artists who are, are generating more work, they've committed uh, the, the worst kind of uh, fraud on the medium of photography. They know they had their moment, but they, they keep on persisting. I, I sometimes think about the Marlon Brando film, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, where Blanche Dubois only wants to be seen in, in, at night and in soft focus. Mm -hmm. And so this mm -hmm. is what uh, what the vast majority of of people are doing. They're perpetrating and continuing this inexcusable fraud. And so with these views expressed, people have just—I mean, they've—you would have thought that that Donald Trump had just uh, agreed to not run anymore. It, you know, it's. But I, I'm um, very clear about this and uh, have uh, have have no regrets about having expressed this. There's. A, a few things in there I want I want to talk about. I, I do want to just add something that I you may have intentionally left out or maybe unintentionally. But from what I understand, there was also just you say you were spent, you were exhausted, but there was a real emotional toll that it took on you after a while, right? That that that's really what you're talking about, like the difference between your circumstances, your your socioeconomic circumstances and those of the people you were photographing. And I, my understanding is that after a while, that you know, wide um, channel, that discrepancy really wore you down and made you feel not good. Is, is that correct? Yes. Uh, there, there are two instances that I can uh, cite. One was in, in 1986, in, in the middle of, of my project. Um, uh, my wife and I 
we're, we're going to have our, our first child. And my mother, who lived in New York, was ecstatic about this. And she came to visit and uh, she offered uh, to buy us uh, furniture, you know, for, for the nursery. And uh, we were excited and, and we thought, you know, because there are, are so many places here where you can get a beautiful antique furniture, we thought about getting uh, an antique crib. But upon further exploration, we discovered that, uh, that OSHA had extremely specific regulations about the distance between the slats on the side of the crib. And they could be no more than two and one-eighth inches. And this was the width that a typical baby's head would not fit through. And so, you know, learning all this, I, on my next uh, photo trip, I was in Augusta, Georgia, and I was, you know, walking down the street. And, and typically I have my camera mounted on a tripod perched on my shoulder. And I was walking down the street and this van passed by. And, you know, I, I learned from growing up in New York that I'm not the only person looking that I'm being looked at. And then when the van passed by me a second time, the red flags came out. And so I thought, hey, what's going on? And, and the van pulled up uh, to the curb and I walked up to it and I asked, hey, what's going on? And a man uh, rolled down the, the passenger window and asked me if I was a photographer and I was being kind of curt. And I said, yeah, what's it to you? And he said, can you come to take a picture for us? And I looked into the van and I saw this woman behind the wheel and I said, yes, you know, and, and this was back in a day when I was totally fearless that I, I, I've had gun rifles and pistols uh, pointed at my face. I, I was fearless. And I said, sure. So I got into the van and we drove for maybe 20 minutes and we arrived at a funeral parlor and the couple let, led me in and in an open casket was their, their baby. And they wanted me to take pictures. And I did. Mm -hmm. And after I did, they invited me over to their home for iced tea. And I was sitting and I could see into their bedroom. And they asked me what I was looking at. I, I, I said, nothing, just, to, you know, I, I can just see the bed. And they told me that their baby had died of suffocation from tossing and turning, getting caught in the sheets and rolling off the mattress. And so with this in mind, in comparison to what we had learned about OSHA standards, this put the picture-taking experience into a hyper-real context. You know, it was not just mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the aesthetics of photography. This was not just about my interest in particular conceptual issues. This was absolute life and death. Mm -hmm. And and then an, another instance happened uh, that was really very moving. My, my photo trips usually lasted a, a week or two. And, and so I... You know, I packed up all my gear and I drove and um, I drove into Georgia and I go and I kind of go slowly into different uh, neighborhoods. And, and I saw uh, this man mowing his lawn and he was shirtless and he was missing an arm. He was pushing this mower with one arm and the photographer in me got really excited 
you know, photographers have some kind of radar system that alerts them to mm-hmm. the fact that there's a photographic possibility. And so my radar mm-hmm. was just beeping like crazy. And, and then I stopped myself and I thought, wait a minute. I mean, this is like reprehensible. I mean, you're excited because of this man's infirmity? I mean, you know, have you no shame? And so I just turned around and I, mm-hmm. and I, I came back home. And, and so I drove maybe six hours and never once stopped the car and never took a picture and so mm-hmm. I knew at this point that what I had become, what I had turned myself into was somebody I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. So, so those were the, yeah. the two I, uh, I get concrete instances that convinced me that there was nothing else that I needed to do or wanted to do. With that you know, ending to your life as an artist, did it turn you off from looking at all of the beautiful and I think important work that you had made up until that point? Like, what were you feeling at that moment about the work you had made? Did it have value to you or were you turned off from all of it for a period of time? Well, it, it depended upon the individual picture. I thought overall the, mm-hmm. the photographs had value, but I wasn't I, I wasn't celebrating, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it was enough to me that I had made them. Right. I just want to say I certainly understand what you're saying about the art world and it's the way it pushes artists and demands work that may not be ready. I'll tell you just on a personal note that, you know, I, I represent artists. I'm an art dealer. That's what I do. I think I, you probably know some of my artists. I think you you know Raheem Fortune, um, who I represent, and a lot of wonderful people. But, you know, I work privately now, and one of the reasons I closed my gallery, which I had for many years, was because I noticed my artists sort of constantly, maniacally <laughs> plotting how to have a show every two years, because that was the accepted time frame. And I felt that that put an unnatural amount of pressure and structure on something that had nothing to do with anything. In other words, the work should just come and be ready when it was ready. And to constantly be having these conversations with my artists about this two-year made-up time frame that they had in their heads just made me feel bad. Um, and I didn't want them in that in that position. And so I certainly, I could give many examples, and so I certainly understand what you're saying. I do, I'll push back a little bit uh, around just the private desire to uh, see the world as a picture, the private desire to make art, to make things. And so what's interesting to me is that, you know, you were sort of so turned off by making pictures that it, it turned everything off. You know, you, you didn't even want to be a maker. Uh, many people who, who are makers can't stop. It's too thrilling. And often that, I know for many people, does not have to do with public ambition, but just has to do with private desire to create. And so it is striking to me that that even private desire to create was was lost for you. But I think it's, you know, it's not helpful to talk about whether or not that's 
sad or not sad or whatever. I mean, I think for the people who love your work, we feel a little melancholy about it, but you've given us this incredible gift of the work that does exist. So we, we should celebrate that, which I'm sure you have mixed feelings about. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's complicated for you to have all this fame sort of coming at you now, but the work is extraordinary, extraordinarily moving, and I think ultimately a real gift to people. Well, thank you. So um, I, yeah. I have one more thing to, to say about uh, this yeah, business. Please. And, um, and, and that, that is, you know, how we see ourselves mm-hmm. at every social occasion. You know, we're always introduced by our profession. And yes, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's an interesting thing because, okay, so if somebody is introduced as a minister or somebody's introduced as a psychiatrist or somebody's introduced as a plumber, what does that really tell you about that person? You know, nothing. It tells you about how they spend eight hours a day, you know, how they make a living, but it tells you nothing about them. And so I, I really have thought about this. And although, you know, I, I have been a son, I'm really not a son. Although I've been a husband, I'm really not, not husband. Although I've done photography, I'm not a photographer. You know, although I've been a father, I'm I'm not a, a parent. You know, I'm I'm who I am, and, and that I happen to have done photography is is really inconsequential. So I feel no remorse whatsoever about stopping because that wasn't it, it had nothing to do with me. It was just simply an external activity that was interesting for a period of time. I think there's a bit of a Buddhist philosophy in there, but (laughs) (laughs) if I'm understanding correctly, yes, we are many things and and we are nothing. Well, the the other thing too is that I had a a really talented student and and when she was about to go on to graduate school, um, you know, she said something that I I remember uh, and, and that is that no matter how famous you become in photography, you'll never be Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, so, so that kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's so easy to, to inflate the importance of what you're doing. Oh, yeah. And, and you of know, course. it's like, uh, I, I mean, what, what, did, what did they say? Uh, museums are only showing like 2% of their holdings. And, um, right. and, and, you know, and, and the thing is, is if everybody stopped making art today, how would the world suffer? It wouldn't, <laughs> you know? So, you know, what, what we're really all engaged in is, is, is something that r- really is not essential. So that, you know, you know, that, that takes a lot of the burden off <laughs> of, of being an artist. Yeah. Well, it's another podcast for whether or not the world would suffer if there was no art. I, I think it would, but uh, <laughs> well, if, if, if but Trump I understand gets re- your larger point. Yeah, if if Trump gets reelected, uh, we'll be able to like see the reality of uh, the termination of art. <laughs> yeah, well, the ter- the termination of a lot of things—that's yeah. for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Baldwin, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I was so looking forward to talking to you, and it was just really a pleasure. So, so thank you so so much, and thank you for your work. And I'll just push back a little on importance of art. It, your work has has really moved me, and I and made me think about a lot of different things. And I think that's what it's about. So. 
Thank you very much. And I thank you. You're uh, you're a, a really uh, great interviewer. Um, you knew exactly what the important questions to ask were. So so thank you very much. Thank you, Baldwin. All right. Uh, be well and hope to meet you sometime in, in person. Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.